Our reading this week comes from Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Word of the Lord. You know, of all of the phrases that have entered our cultural lexicon in the last year or so, am I the only one who's weirded out by that phrase, fake news? And it's not because I don't think that journalists are more than capable of, you know, manufacturing news at a slant away from what normal people would call objectivity. No, my concern is what happens when a radical suspicion roots itself in the very act of knowing itself, I don't know if you have to dig back into your freshman philosophy class, but there's really no bigger question that a human being has to ask than to say, how do I know what I say that I know? You know, I was in college. There was no more consistent repetition than this idea that truth is relative. There is no ultimate order of things to which defines everything that's true or not. Well, what happens when this sort of soaks into the culture is what we're living with in the last 30-some-odd years. Fifteen years ago, there was a social scientist named Bruno Latour who was writing an essay where he worried that the relativism that he had come to espouse was being hijacked by the wrong people. You know, cultural relativism used to be the, the purview of the political left, the, the, the liberal mind, but now some of these right-wing people are sort of taking it over themselves. He says this in his article, there's entire Ph.D. programs that are still running to make sure that good American kids are learning the hard way that facts are made up. There is no such thing as natural, unmediated, unbiased access to truth, that we are always prisoners of language, that we always speak from a particular standpoint, and so on. However, now, dangerous extremists are using the very same argument of social construction to destroy hard-won evidence that could save our lives. Now, Latour there is talking about climate change deniers, which is a topic I know almost nothing about. But what I do find fascinating is, is his realization that once you introduce an idea, all truth is relative, the consequences of that kind of thing can eventually be used against you. And when it becomes sort of a pervasive idea in society, it can create absolute chaos. I quoted last week from Christian Smith, a sociology professor at Notre Dame, who recently wrote an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education when he said this. He said, the most disturbing consequences of this long-term corruption are now playing out in our national political culture and institutions. Dramatic political polarization fake news, legislative paralysis, torrents of blatant lies told with impunity, violent radicals destroying things in our city streets, 
scandalous ignorance of large swaths of Americans about the basic facets of our most pressing national problems. Some top officials boasting about their sexual harassments and assaults without consequence. International diplomacy conducted through schoolyard taunting. And the growing frustration and increasingly desperate rage of large sectors of, sectors of ordinary Americans. These are exactly what develop when even the educated citizens of a country are for too many decades not educated well. And when the institutional centers of enlightened learning and debate become havens of ideology, intimidation, and mission drift. Wow. I would dare say there's not a person in this room who hasn't had an argument in the last six months with someone about those very topics. But what I want to get you to think about this morning is, is the fact that it is utterly foundational to any consideration of what we've been trying to define as the good life to begin to evaluate the trustworthiness of the most basic places where you find truth and to find out if they really are worth it. Because you don't have to think about very long to realize that you really can't say that you know something without trusting in something. You ever thought about this? Some people trust in their parents. Well, my daddy said so. Some people trust their eyes. Seeing is believing. Some people trust the experts. You know, I'm going to listen to the science, we say. Some people trust the opinion polls. Well, you know, I'm not with the majority or I'm not with that minority. In other words, you can't say that you know something without trusting in something in order to know it. Well, in the passage that we looked at this morning, Jesus is clarifying his posture towards the dominant source of authority that he knew his listeners were leaning upon, namely the Jewish Torah. And the people listening to that sermon were very deeply embedded in a certain view of the world, a, a cultural history, if you will, that was making some pretty astounding claims. Not the least of which, first of all, was that their God was the God, not just a God. And secondly, that God had chosen the Jewish nation to be the focal point of how he was going to fix the world. And that finally, that God had unveiled this plan through Moses, uh, through, through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that would culminate in God giving the law at Mount Sinai. That was in the background of everyone's belief when Jesus stands up and says what he says. And so naturally, the people in the audience are wondering, Jesus, what are you up to? Are you here as an innovator? Are you a cultural revolutionary? Or are you here starting a whole new thing? And so verses 17 through 20 are Jesus' amazing answer to that question because we will find that he doesn't think he's starting something completely new. Do not think that I come to abolish the law, he says. Rather, I'm here to fulfill it. And my premise this morning is, is that little phrase, I came to fulfill the law, lays out in the most profound terms what all of Jesus' followers would embrace as their ground of knowing. Capital T, bottom line, truth. In other words, what Jesus here is doing is he's linking our quest for the good life, to the Bible, to what is contained in the pages of Holy Scripture. So what we, how we think about the Bible is absolutely central to how I know anything and therefore how I heal my own soul and the world around me, which is why we've got to take a look at it. 
So this morning I want to look at three topics that we're going to look at that sort of surround the topic of the Bible. The Bible is reliable, Jesus will say. It is about Jesus. And then thirdly, it's trustworthy. Let's take that first one. The Bible is reliable. Look, Jesus explains when he stands, you know, where he stands with this Jewish worldview, and he starts to talk about this revelation in some very interesting ways. Look at verse 18. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Let's unpack that for a second. But when Jesus says all is accomplished, he's saying that everything in the Bible was looking forward to something. Some prediction, some some requirement, whatever. There was nothing in the Old Testament scriptures that was going to be left unattended to, he means. And all that way it would be accomplished. But isn't it amazing how he puts it so dramatically? He says not an iota or a dot is going to be excluded from being accomplished in all this. So what is he referring to? Jesus is referring to these little, these little hash marks uh, that would have been made in Hebrew letter formation, which are kind of more scripted than our particular English translation. Even those little tiny hash marks, he says, you can lean upon those. You can trust those. What's he saying? He says you can get down and be tr- you can trust in the Bible even down to the tiniest little inflections on letters. It's a figure of speech, right, of Jesus saying that for centuries we have established this belief that the Christian comes to the Bible as if it contains no errors. Even the minutia of the Bible is reliable. And so in our tradition, we use the word inerrancy to describe the Bible. Inerrancy simply means, stated simply, that the Bible doesn't affirm any errors. It doesn't endorse anything that's untrue. When the Bible tells history, it tells us what actually happened. It may report that someone lied, of course, but it doesn't endorse that lie, right? So therefore, the Bible, in its original manuscripts, is entirely truthful and contains no errors at all because of Jesus' instruction here. Now, mind you, we are not in possession of those original manuscripts, but through this incredibly detailed science of textual transmission We have what even unbelieving scholars would say is the most reliable document in all of antiquity. This is absolutely agreed upon. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, mind you, that doesn't mean that there have not been all kinds of attempts to discredit the infallibility and inerrancy of the Bible for many years. I would say for the better part of, say, the the 1850s through the 1950s, all kinds of assaults from sort of a higher critical stance were made against whether or not the Bible that you have translated on your device this morning is reliable with what the authors actually wrote. But in 1947, you need to know that there were some Middle Eastern shepherds who stumbled across a little smallish cave on the western side of the Dead Sea. And on the inside of this cave, they found these rather large canisters that were full of clearly very, very, very old parchments, scrolls, which dated back, they found, as they tested them, to the 3rd century B.C., hundreds of years before Christ. Well, as it turns out, these these 800-some-odd fragments, of those 800 fragments, almost 200 of them were copies of the Old Testament Scripture. One of the scroll had the entire text of the book of Isaiah, 
which would not be interesting except for the fact that the scholars began to note that there were almost no differences between the copy that we have that is, what, 2,300 years old and the copy that scholars use today of the Hebrew Scriptures to give you the Old Testament you have translated before you. Does that make sense? It was an astounding claim for what the scholars now refer to as the Dead Sea Scrolls. In other words, the more scrutiny that the Bible tends to come under, generation after generation, the Bible has come out smelling like a rose. Because Jesus said, not a jot or a tittle will pass away until it's all confirmed. It's all there for you. You can trust yourself to it. Every detail of the Bible is reliable, he says. Now, granted, I'm going to admit that there are places where textual transmission can create some questions. There are difficult parts here and there, but nothing comes close to touching the major thrust of the word. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, look, you can count on the fact that you can know what's true and that that truth has not been tampered with beyond your ability to discern it. So the Bible, first of all, is reliable. But the second point I want to make is this. That is that the Bible is all about Jesus. So with that in mind, turn to verse 17. Because Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. What he's saying is, is the foundational document that you have built your life upon is reliable. You can trust it. I'm not going to oppose you with what you've come to believe. Now look, stop there for just a second. Remember, Jesus is talking to Jewish people for whom their only scripture was the Old Testament, right? And so with that one little affirmation, I did not come to abolish that, Jesus is making a direct connection between the revelation of God in the Old Testament and the, and the revelation of God through Jesus in the New. So that from that time on, no Christian could ever talk about the bad old mean God of the Old Testament and the nice, kind, gentle Jesus, meek and mild in the New. That is false, according to Jesus. There is no conflict between saying, well, that's in the Old Testament. I'm a New Testament Christian. Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a whole Bible Christian, not just one or the other. But that's not to say that Jesus was just some other prophet. Notice he says, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. And that little word, like I said, is absolutely packed with a ton of controversy over what exactly Jesus meant by that. But here's, I think, what he means. He says, I am the point of the Bible. The Bible is a story with a theme, and that theme is me. And you don't really understand it until you found me in the text. Jesus said as much in Luke 24, 27, as he's walking along with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember this story? And it says there at the end that after these guys are trying to figure out who this person is they're talking to, who knows so much, it says, And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Man, I wish I could have been in on that small group. Don't you? <laughs> Jesus begins to unpack and say, Everything in the Old Testament was pointing to me. It's a story that culminates in me. And you try to find different ways to illustrate this, but I'm going to try this on you. I wonder how you could do if I asked you to sum up the story of the Bible as briefly as you could. Could you do it? I heard one preacher take a stab at it this way, and I thought it was really well done. He said, look, the Bible is about a king. He's about a king who lived here, but then he left, and one day he's coming back. Because once upon a time, God did live here. His kingdom was present. 
And it was present in a mountain garden called Eden. It was, it was planted, by the way, in the shape of a perfect square, we find. And in that place, there were perfection. Because the human beings that were there interacted with God through unclouded joy and fullness of life. But when his people decided they wanted to be their own masters, of course, his light and his glory withdrew. And so you've got this question hanging over the Bible for many books. Will he ever be back? Well, all of a sudden, a couple hundred years later, there's a man named Moses who meets with God, and God tells him that he wants him to build a sacred worship tent, in the middle of which he was to build a room that was in the shape of a perfect cube, by the way, called the Holy of Holies. And so Moses built it, and guess what? The glory returned. The glory of God returned. But it was still dangerous. It was still difficult for sinful human beings because they were constantly rebellious and constantly sinning. Well, then hundreds of years later, another man comes along and starts to speak in a very strange way. Because he says, hey, you know that tabernacle that we used to all worship in? I am the tabernacle. You know that temple that you're so committed to? I am that temple. And honestly, destroy my body and in three days I will build it up again. And of course, people look around and they say, what in the world's going on? Because this was a man whose glory started shining through. I mean, the, the demons were the people that shuddered. People were healed. People were lifted up because the glory of God had returned. Even so much that at that man's death, the great curtain that separated this holy of holies from the rest of the world was split in half. Not just so that you and I can have access to him inside, but though, so that he can get out. God has broken out on the moment of Jesus' death and resurrection. He's on the move. He's restoring that which is broken. And now, the healing that began there is in you, the church. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 12, 32, when he says, Look, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. To give you the kingdom. What does he mean by that? He means that that little garden in Eden, <laughs> that, that, that center tabernacle in Old Testament worship, is now in you. And so the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to unpack how that power can transform our lives in every way. And by the way, the last chapter of that, Bible, of that book is not really written yet. Because this power is not only broken out into the world, but eventually it's going to cover the entire earth. This new Jerusalem that comes down in Revelation chapter 21 is in the shape, as it turns out, of a perfect cube. What does that mean? It's an image describing the fact that this same place, the whole world, will be one giant garden where the Father walks in the cool of the day with all of his people. A huge temple with Jesus as the light in the center of it all. That's the story of the Bible. And so what this means is, as we come to Jesus right at the gateway of probably his heaviest teaching portion. I'm not going to lie to you. In the weeks ahead, we're going to do deep dives in a lot of very personal things that Jesus wants to walk us through. But if you don't go through this gate and understand that Jesus is the point of the Bible, I promise you these weeks ahead will be crushing. There's a way to read the Sermon on the Mount as if it's nothing more than a great big finger wagging at you. Did you do right? Have you lived up to this? But Jesus is coming and saying, no, no, you've got to read it through me. And that doesn't mean you're going to be dismissive of the law. Far from it. What it means is, is I'm going to do something miraculous in you and through you so that by my work in you, you're going to find the power to keep it. More on that next week. Stay tuned. 
So we believe that the Bible is reliable, first of all. Secondly, we said the Bible is about Jesus. But thirdly and finally, we know that the Bible is trustworthy. The Bible is trustworthy because if you put point one and point two together, you get some explanation for why the Bible talks about itself the way in which it does. Paul says to Timothy that the Bible is profitable, we said. In other words, there is gain to someone who begins to build their lives upon the truth of Scripture. There's gain. Beyond that, the Bible is the supreme catalyst for change. I was talking before the service this morning about Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. that says this, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. What does that mean? It means that when we encounter him in Scripture, he gets down into the nooks and crannies of places. There is no place that the Scripture cannot have the right to speak into your life. We are not allowed to sequester the darkest secrets of our place from the scrutiny of God's Word. It all has to come out in God's people. So when you decide to dive into the Bible, (laughs) if you decide to dive into the Bible, you better not do so with a commitment to your own status quo. Because that's not how the Bible works. And I realize that's scary for a lot of us, but don't you kind of want that? Isn't there something that secretly wishes that you could change yourself? And ultimately, we oftentimes go to such superficial things. We're like, well, yeah, I do want to change my life. I, I'm going to lose some weight this year. I, I'm going to exercise more. I, I, I'm going to try to you know, get up a little earlier in the mornings. All of those things are fine in and of themselves. But there's also a religious version of that, you know? You know what you're right, Les? I'm going to change. I'm going to get back to church more. I'm going to join a small group. I, I, I'm going to, I'll even give a little money to the church. But what Jesus is saying is, if any of those things, not bad things in themselves at all, but if those things are abstracted from a deep dive into the Scripture and into the person and work of Christ, those very things are going to do the opposite of what you want them to do. They won't soften you. They'll harden you. They won't make you easier to confront. They'll make you harder to confront. They'll make it harder to bring, uh, extract humility from you. Why? Because only the Scripture can produce that. We've missed something along the way. Look, here's the point. The Bible says that you can build your life upon Scripture, but when you do, you have found the only possible spot to build an imperishable life. I like that word, imperishable. First Peter 1.23 has a passage where Peter is unpacking for his uh, readers how to attain assurance of salvation. You ever thought about that topic? We talked about how do you know what you know. How do I know that God and I are on the same page? How do I know that I'm really a Christian? Listen to what Peter says. He says, but you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. And did you catch that? If you are born again this morning, you did not get that way because you followed a very clear, level path. Or you were, you were really, really sincere when you prayed and asked for forgiveness. Or you've been doing your best since you tried, decided to follow Him. Look, if you try to build your life on those notions, what Peter is saying is, I'll bet you don't have a very assured life because all of those things are perishable seeds. 
all those things do to you is not to make you love God. They make you afraid of Him. It's not, your, my life is not motivated by His joy. It's motivated by intimidation. And what we hope is that we can just keep it together a little bit longer, then finally I'll get the favor from Him that I crave. Those are perishable things. But here's the good news. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, which means, among a whole other things, that your being born again did not happen because of anything in you. Instead, you were born again of an imperishable seed, something that can't be touched, not even by your failure to live up to it. How could that be? Well, look at verse 23. Through the living and abiding Word of God. In other words, it's only the Bible that can give you assurance that who you are as a Christian is bounded and founded on permanence and security. Why? Because it came from outside of me. Let me put it this way. To the degree that you take the Bible in to your mind and to your heart, it's not just that the Bible is imperishable, it's that you will become an imperishable person. It means that you suddenly become some, someone for whom what you do will never fall away. It'll never pass away. Even the tiniest flicker of faith won't be ignored. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 42, he says, look, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. <laughs> What's Jesus saying? He's saying those acts of grace that the world would probably never know will ring throughout the halls of eternity forever because they were built upon the Word of God. Because it was connected, it connected to something that was imperishable. It's a PCA pastor named Russ Ramsey who tells a story of being uh, found himself in the hospital um, with some kind of bacterial infection or whatever. He's very sick. Uh, but it happened to be on a day of his birthday. How depressing, right? He said while he was there, you know, the, he noticed that like any kind of pain, that pain sort of moves from your physical body out to your spiritual body, does it not? And spiritually get depressed over it? Well, he said that a, a dear African-American nurse came into his room at one point to check on his chart. And as she picked it up, she read out and she said, Russell Brown Ramsey, May 17th. Wait, Mr. Ramsey, is today your birthday? Listen to Ramsey describe what happened next. He said, she straightened herself up, turned her face to me, and put her right hand on my left, a portrait of dignity and poise. She then, with just the two of us in the room, began to sing over me. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Mr. Ramsey. Happy birthday to you. Then she smiled at me, turned and left the room, and I started to weep. Because this woman didn't know me. But she knew the stretch of trail that I was on. She knew that I was in the hospital facing a, a difficult situation. And it was my birthday. She didn't know whether I was kind or gentle or abrasive. Whether I was honest or whether I was a liar. But she knew that I was there in the hospital on my birthday. And probably feeling a little lost. And on that basis alone, I mattered to her. Ramsey goes on to find out that she was a Christian lady. And here's my question. Where did she get that power to be a healing person? Because this is the crazy thing. That woman has no idea 
that somewhere in Oxford, Mississippi, we're standing up and looking to her example as one that we might embrace as God's people to even find in the smallest little jot or, or dots, the little smallest pin stroke of truth in God's word. Every time I live in, co- in conjunction and in coordination and in the light of those truths, nothing that I do will pass away. <laughs> Could there be any greater dignity? Could there be anything more joyful in our quest for the good life than to know that there is nothing that will pass away as long as it's done in the light of this word? So yeah, we should read it. (laughs) So yeah, we should soak our worship services with the word of God. So yeah, we should find new resolve all the time to find ways to immerse myself into the nooks and the crannies and the jots and and the dots of that word. So that somewhere in the midst of it, I would become an imperishable person. Don't you want that? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you guide us into that? Because your word also tells us that if that happens, it will not be because of anything in us. But Father, somewhere in small little places, we, when all of the confusion of cultural noise and all the talk of fake news and all the question of whether or not we can know anything at all roars around us. Somewhere in a tiny little hospital room, there's a Christian who, because you told them about little cups of cold water to your disciples, are ministering. They're bringing, they're bringing joy. They're bringing healing. And Father, we ask very specifically that we would be just that church. We expect no applause from the world around us while we do. But what we long for is to know that when it's all said and done, because we built our life on your word, that we could... That the significance of our lives would be summed up in what you have said about us. So, Father, we ask that we would live in that this morning, that we would step up into it that morning, this morning. And if nothing else, resolve to dive into it more. Would you do that? Well, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.